0: Welcome to the Village Youth Podcast Show. Okay, hey, uh, my name is Michael and I get uh, the privilege of talking to us today on week two of God and Culture. Last week we talked about God and other religions and today we are talking on the subject of God and alcohol. So, this would be fun, talking about stuff. It'll be great. And uh, so hopefully if you are in the room, uh, you are someone who is here curious about what the Christian perspective is on alcohol and partying and drinking in general. And uh, if you don't want to hear any of those things, uh, you're kind of stuck. So have fun. Anyways... Uh, We are going to, hopefully for the next 30 minutes, chat about the Christian perspective on drinking. And uh, if you are someone who agrees with it, that's awesome. If you are someone who doesn't agree with it, that's awesome too. Uh, We're glad you're here and uh, that you are, yeah, just listening to stuff from the church and what God has a perspective from for drinking. So... Let me start off here by quoting a number of different passages about alcohol in the scriptures. Uh, Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Ephesians 5, 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Galatians 5, 21, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, 1 Timothy 5:23. This is Paul, He's like a mentor to this guy named Timothy, and uh, Timothy's not feeling very well. So Paul writes this way, He says, "No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments." This is how Paul views wine. Uh, Isaiah 5:22, "Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink." Isaiah 5, 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. 1 Timothy 3a, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, Proverbs 21, 17, Whoever loves pleasure uh, will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. In Ecclesiastes 9, 7, just to throw us off, Go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. The fascinating passage that we are going to look through today is Jesus' very first miracle in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, it's a very interesting story of Jesus going to a wedding. And this is how it begins. Uh, The wedding at Cana, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. This is a social gathering. Uh, Galilee and the surrounding areas of where Jesus was born and was he, where he was hanging out. And where he was kind of living at the time was only eight miles away from where this wedding was taking place. The idea of what it's trying to tell us at the beginning of this is Jesus' mom is invited, Jesus is invited, and Jesus' friends are all invited. Which means that this wedding is happening at home. The community is involved. Everybody got invited to this thing and he has come to hang out. This is Jesus' home. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Could you imagine your mom comes up to you it's like, you left the towels on the ground and you went, woman, <laughs> no. <laughs> She'd be like, oh, woman, oh, you're yeah, right. Right, so that was my mom and uh, it was a, uh, a wooden spoon with my name on it and it's, It's weird, isn't it, that this kind of language, Jesus like, whoa, Jesus like, chill out. Why are you being so rude? Why are you kind of saying this? And why are you being so like aggro and aggressive about this at the current moment? Jesus' main point is Jesus' mom is trying to get him to do something on her timeline. And Jesus' main rebuke of his own mother is, listen, I will do this on my own time because I have a different set of priorities. But this language of when he says woman is actually not a very rude thing. And you'll see this kind of how she responds to this later. For Jesus to go, woman, is not uh, him being abrasive, is not him being rude or insulting her in any which way. In fact, when Jesus is on the cross, look at the language that he uses at this point. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Addressing his mother simply as woman was not abrupt like it is to us modern readers' ears. It does not imply the lack of affection. Jesus addressed his mother in the same way that he addressed her at the cross, with love, but also with a bit of disagreement. So if if Jesus' mom was super offended at this whole thing, how would she respond? Probably not the way that she actually does. Verse number five, and his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. It's often been remarked that Mary, who is not actually named in John's gospel, whatever, her name comes from all the other gospels, that Mary's only command that she ever gives is preserved for us in one instruction. People should do whatever Jesus told them to do. It seems that as she knew, she could turn to her son in need, and so others should also do the same. Now, for the end of the story, this is how it works. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, it now became wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. This is the groom, not like the bride. It's the bride, bride, is the dude. And said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. When Jesus makes wine, he makes it the best. Verse 11, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus' interaction with alcohol is quite interesting Uh, It clearly says throughout the scriptures that Jesus was a drinker of wine. When he would go to a party, when he would go to a dinner, he would participate in the drinking of wine. Now, one of the things that has to happen is that there has to be some sort of wisdom involved with alcohol. This is the very first point. Wisdom is involved. I think uh, we are very used to raw knowledge. Raw knowledge is what you go to school for. It's facts, it's data, it's information. It's what you scroll Instagram for. So-and-so is engaged. So-and-so has a new cat. So-and-so is now a vegan. Whatever. It's all these different pieces of information that you begin to have that's concrete and factual. It's the what. This is raw knowledge. Wisdom is a very different thing. Wisdom is very simply the skill of living life. Wisdom is the skill of living life. If raw knowledge is the what, wisdom is the how. How, when, where, you should apply a certain piece of knowledge that you have. And drinking needs a lot of wisdom. Because alcohol, in the sense of how it's consumed, usually with high school students, is a very different ballgame. Because drinking does something to you that you might not actually know. The idea today is we're going to get kind of technical. We're going to go a lot of Jesus. We're going to go a lot of brain chemistry. We're going to go a lot of really fun things. And uh, we're going to kind of try to wrap it all up in a bow and see how it goes. So uh, studies kind of say it this way, that there's a term called myopia. Myopia is the difference between what you believe reality to be versus how it really is in this term. And this is what one writer says about it. Myopia theory has an answer to a puzzle. For alcohol, it depends on what the anxious, drunk person is doing. If he's at a football game surrounded by rabid fans, the excitement and drama going around him will temporarily crowd out his pressing worldly concerns. The game is front and center, his worries are not. But if the same man is in a quiet corner of a bar drinking alone, he will get more depressed. Now, there's nothing to distract him. Drinking puts you at the mercy of your environment. It crowds out everything except the most immediate experiences. Some of us have the idea of when I have you know a beer and I'm about to go into battle, it's gonna make me more courageous. Or if I'm gonna drink and I'm not so funny, maybe I'll get funny. Or maybe if I drink and I'm a shy person, now I'll become extroverted. It will take away all of like the weird gates and all of these, like, inhibition, these, these, these things that are inhibiting my personality and it will all come out and I will show my drunk self to the world and it will be great and it will be awesome. Now what researchers are saying about alcohol is that alcohol does not take away all the gates or all the things that's protecting you or the boundaries. What alcohol does is it enhances your immediate experience. So if I go to a football game and everybody's drunk and everybody's excited, I'm going to imitate the immediate environment and I will show those same things. If I just got broken up with and now I'm at my home on like the seventh thing of Gilmore Girls drinking a bottle of wine and I'm depressed out of my face, alcohol at that moment in that environment that you are in will only make you more depressed. It enhances your immediate environment, okay? If I'm at a wedding and there's family around and it's joy and it's structured, I will only be more happy. Uh, at my wedding, we have, uh, both of mine and my wife's side are heavy drinkers. And so even though me and my wife do not drink, uh, the alcohol had to be there or else we're going to get banned from our families. So we go there. And we're hanging out, and, you know, you got to kind of greet everyone. And you're like, oh, my gosh, thank you for being here. What's your name? And so you're, like, walking around, and you're doing the whole thing. And at one point, I walk up to uh, Wyatt's mom. So Wyatt's mom was at my wedding, but Wyatt wasn't there. I don't know why. But Wyatt's mom was there. And I walk up to Wyatt's mom, and she goes, are these your cousins behind me? And I go, yeah. And it's like, imagine like just 15 Latino guys just sitting in a circle, right? And, uh, and, and I'm like, <laughs> it's very clearly this is my side. You know, because they're like, what's up, say? And so they're hanging out. And, uh, and she goes, I think they, I think they have like a, a big bottle of alcohol under their table. And I go, yeah, probably. And I see one of them put it on the table. And I'm like, oh, well, that's not big. That's monstrous. And, and Wyatt's mom goes to me, there's no way they finish that. About 30 minutes, I leave and I come back and every, like two guys are on the floor, one dude's on the ceiling. I go, oh, and the bottle's empty. And I go, okay. It seems pretty hectic. It seems pretty chaotic with a lot of different peoples, like 250 people at our wedding. You can imagine tensions might go loose, people might get violent, people might get aggressive. None of that happened. Sure, there was people who drank a little bit too much and they were a little bit gone too far, but because of the environment of the wedding, which was joyous and celebratory, everybody kind of held their own and the environment was heightened within all of the drinking. That's the number one point, okay? Alcohol just goes and extends the environment that you are in. This is the number one thing that we have to think about. Lots of joy, no drama, and there's a proper way of drinking alcohol. Ecclesiastes 9:7 says it very simply go Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. For the writer of Ecclesiastes, he is seeing wine and alcohol in a very positive note. He is saying it has a season, and this season is for affirmation. In fact, the Proverbs also say it this way: "And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen the man's heart." Alcohol is seen in a very positive way. It is by God to gladden the heart. Alcohol. is not necessarily a bad thing, but there is a proper way of doing this. There was a researcher who went down to Mexico and he found some natives in the mountains of Mexico who don't speak Spanish, they have their own dialogue. And when he was going to meet with these people, he realized that they had these very lonely and isolating long jobs that they would work for five days in a row. Then the weekends would come, they would all huddle together into this big community and they would drink their face off, right? And now in other cultures, what you would see is whenever they would drink this much alcohol, it would get violent, tense, people would fight each other, it was very aggressive. So this is what he's assuming that he's going to see. When he shows up on these weekends, he sees something very, very different. This is what he writes. So, on the weekends, they use the the transformative power of alcohol to create the communal expression so sorely lacking from Monday to Friday. They used the myopia of alcohol to temporarily create a different world for themselves. They gave themselves strict rules, one bottle at a time, an organized series of toasts, all seated around the circle, only to the weekends and never alone. They drank only within a structure, and the structure of those drinking circles in this interior was a world of soft music and quiet conversation, order, friendship, predictability, and ritual." For them, the proper way of drinking alcohol was in a structure and a rhythm and nothing ever got out of hand. What he's also going to add for everybody who drinks is alcohol is a drug that reshapes the drinker according to the contours of his immediate environment. Whatever the environment is will be enhanced through alcohol. Okay, big point. Whatever your environment is, is going to be enhanced by alcohol. Now when Jesus goes to this wedding... This wedding is very organized. It's a week long. There's all of these different events and all these different activities. So when Jesus shows up with his boys, they're like, what's up? They all run out of of wine. His mom runs up to him and says, hey, listen, you have to do something about this. And Jesus provides them the thing that they are wanting. So there's a couple different things. Just to be straight up and blunt with you, alcohol is not sin. Drinking alcohol is not a sin. Why? One, Jesus drank Two, the Bible has it in a very positive light at times. It is medicinally helpful for you at times. It is something that makes you more joyous. It grows into community. And third, why is alcohol not a sin? Because when Jesus is looking at his church to remember him, he says, hey, listen, take the bread and take the wine. Wine for him was a symbol of remembrance of what he did on the cross. And so through these actions, you would see that drinking in and of itself is not against biblical reasoning. The Bible is very pro-alcohol within boundaries. And that is the point, within certain boundaries. Without those boundaries, things go very wrong. And I think we all have a big sense. I think you're all feeling it. You're like, okay, this guy's been pretty pro-wine right now. And he's going to lay the hammer. Anyway, so... Improper way of drinking alcohol. Uh, We, and by we, I mean maybe some of us, uh, maybe more, uh, never mind. Some of us are going to uh, know the experiences of improper ways of drinking alcohol. I have numerous amount of stories of times in high school where things just went sideways pretty fast. There was a time where me and a girl walked to McDonald's to go get a milkshake. And I came back and I found my friend Jordan passed out on a tire and he was green, like completely green blackout drunk with four guys around him trying to take his shirt off. And I was like, whoa, bro, hey, he likes his shirt on. Jordan, All Right? I took him up, picked him up like he was a baby. And, uh, and I remember I had to call his sister and his sister came and it was so awkward. And we were trying to put Jordan's shoe on in the car and he's like on his back and he tries to put his shoe on and then boots the windshield as hard as he possibly could. And we were like, sorry. And we just kind of left. In that environment, we didn't do a very good job of protecting him or keeping him in in line, because the culture of him was at that moment, we were late to the party. So all of our friends were already in a certain state of drunkenness, and so he thought to himself, I have to catch up. Because he was trying to catch up, look at what happened, did not have a very good time. That's another situation that was kind of a bit of an improper way. What about another one? Well, we were in a party where it was kind of a weird, unusual group of individuals. And uh, things got a bit weird because a guy was hitting on my friend's girlfriend. And so they were outside on the balcony and he was like, what, Why are you trying to hit on my girlfriend? He's like, Because I, I think she's super good looking. And then they're fighting and they're like, I don't like you. And so my friend Fuad, he was like massive, he's like a six foot five Lebanese guy, just gets his. Hits like his arms and then just shoves him. The guy, I don't know how this happened, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen, flies off the balcony and falls straight onto cement. And it was like a part of Scooby Doo, or like when somebody falls in a well, you know, like has the camera up view of like 12 people looking over. And he's like, ah. We were like, oh my goodness, right? Dude fell off the balcony, my friend threw him off. Drinking is a horrible thing. That's what I thought about in that moment. Or there's the time in high school, once again with Jordan, he was not a very good apple. We were hanging out at a different place, and there was a group of students who uh, didn't like the music. And so now there became a music battle. And what became a nice little disagreement turned out into somebody throwing a bottle of alcohol, hitting someone in the head. Blood and an all-out brawl happens in this house of like a 100 people. And then there was the few who got inside of it. And then there was me trying to get my friend Jordan to get off of trying to fight someone. And then we watched the thing from the outside. And then like 12 cop cars show up. And I go, I'm the only sober person here. And this is a terrifying thing. And I'm trying to grab my friend Jordan. I'm literally carrying him like a baby again to McDonald's. We finally sit him down at McDonald's and he's like, I don't understand why the cops have to come. Like, it's not even that big of a deal. I'm like, are you okay? He wasn't okay. Anyways, you get the idea. When you are in these situations, crazy stuff happens. Now, you're going, where did you go to high school? You're a psychopath. Let me tell you, it was crazy. A lot of things I've seen through the the, the actual use of alcohol in a lot of crazy ways and uh, and. For a lot of good reasons, I found myself kind of staying away from it. And that was a big kind of purpose. Alcohol is used improperly in a number of different ways, especially with this age group. The number one point of improper use of alcohol and why alcohol should not be used in the way that it is for you guys is very simple. It's illegal, right? That's a good point. It's like, hey, you know what? Murder's a bad thing. So technically it fits in the same way as drinking in our culture for anybody that's a minor. Now you're going, okay, relax. Like everybody drinks, everybody does it. It's not that big of a deal. If a cop shows up to a party, they'll probably not even press charges or even get you into that much trouble because everybody's done it, everybody's been there. I get it. I understand what you're saying. Cool, that's your point. But if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, it's not just because you're breaking the law of BC or the law of Canada. There's a different agenda here in place. Romans chapter 13 says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to a good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. The authority is God's servant for your good. So, in response and respecting your authority... Look at how it ends this way in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. The authorities are God's servants. They are placed by the Lord himself to be in this position. And their law is what we are supposed to follow by God's mandate. So, number one, it's illegal. Now, I'm going to say that and you're going to go, classic. Oh yeah, he's going to tell us it's illegal. Whatever, I get it. And I understand that when I say that, I have to say that because it's true. The other part is that you're not going to listen to me. And you're going to go, okay, whatever, that's cool, you're the guy on the stage, you have to say that, but I'm not going to pay attention, I'm going to do my own thing anyways. Now, for that group of people, I have to tell you that there's also another improper way of drinking. And the improper way of drinking is how you are drinking. Not only are you guys drinking, which is illegal, But a majority of high school students drink in the worst possible way ever. There is no worse way of drinking than high school parties. There is no way in human history that is worse for you to drink at than in that kind of environment. And this is why. Uh, Once again, from the same writers of the Washington Post and other places, non-Christian sources, this isn't a list of a bunch of Christian guys getting angry. This is non-Christians writing this research. When young people today drink to excess, they aren't doing so in a ritualized, predictable environment, carefully constructed to create a better version of themselves. They're doing so in the hyper sexualized chaos of parties and bars. The first drink dappens activity in a certain region of their brain. It makes us a little dumber, less capable of handling competing, complicated considerations. It hits the reward centers of the brain the areas that govern euphoria and gives them a little bit of a jolt. It finds its way into the amygdala. The amygdala's job is to tell us how to react to the world around us. Are we being threatened? Should we be afraid? Alcohol turns the amygdala down a notch. The combination of those three effects is where myopia comes from. We don't have the brain power to handle more complex, long-term considerations. We're distracted by the unexpected pleasure of the alcohol. Our neurological burglar alarm has been turned off. We become an altered version of ourselves, beholden to the moment. Alcohol also finds its way to your cerebellum, the very back of the brain, which is involved in balance and coordination. That's why you start to stumble and stagger when intoxicated. These are the predictable effects of getting drunk. First and foremost, all of the things that you have in your brain that keep you safe get turned off when you drink too much. Which means that if somebody approaches you in a way that you don't like, you can't really kind of determine what the intentions are for the most part. The less you have drank, the better you are at doing it. The more you drink, the worse it is. Then you begin to stumble. Then your dynamic movement goes down. A lot of drinking at a rapid pace in a short amount of time does this to you. And then it gets worse. Then, if you drink a lot in a short period of time, alcohol hits the hippocampus. It's a small region on each side of the brain that's responsible for forming memories about our lives. At a certain blood alcohol level, the legal level of intoxication, the hippocampus starts to struggle. When you wake up the morning after a party and remember meeting someone but cannot for the life of you remember their name or the story they told you, that's because... The alcohol that you drank in quick succession reached your hippocampus. Drink a little more and the gaps get larger to the point where maybe you remember pieces of an evening, but other details can be summoned only with great difficulty and intensity. The way that high schoolers party is the worst way because what you are doing is you are drinking a lot of alcohol, In a short amount of time, you are doing things like playing games with alcohol. So maybe you're flipping a cup or maybe you're throwing a ball into somebody else's cup. And however many drinks you are taking, you're doing it for the moment and you're having the joy of that moment, which for you in the moment is fine. But because you're drinking so much at such a quick pace, the ability for things to go wrong are way higher than you believe. What happens is if you drink too much and too short of a time, the alcohol hits the memory-forming part of your brain, okay? This is very important stuff because the U.S. and the U.K. are going through the same constant struggle right now, which is in all of their colleges, they are going through the same story. Guy gets hammered. Girl gets hammered. They both agree to go to the dorm room together, they get it on, and the next day it's rape. Why? Because none of them can remember what happens because they drank too fast in too short of a part of time. And no one knows what to do with this legally because it makes no sense. So this is why. Because when college students go to a party, they're drinking too much in too small an area of time in a hyper-sexualized environment. What did we just talk about? Whatever you drink, when you drink, you are heightening the environment that you are in. So if you go to a party, a high school party, with a bunch of horny boys, and you walk in there, and you drink a lot in a short amount of time, you are putting yourself in a position of heightening the environment that you are in, and trouble begins to happen that way. That's why I'm saying this is the worst possible way you can do it. You drink too much in too short of a time in a very vulnerable environment. This is The whole red flags, warnings, yellow lights, everything should be going off right now that this is the worst possible way to do this. And the more you drink, the less you will remember. And the less you will remember, the more problems begin to arise. And there are so many different versions of the exact same story. A 39-year-old salesman awoke in a strange hotel room. He had a mild hangover, but otherwise felt pretty normal. His clothes were hanging in the closet. He was clean shaven. He dressed and went down to the lobby. He learned from the clerk that he was in Las Vegas and that he had checked in two days previously. It had been obvious that he had been drinking, the clerk said, but he had not seemed very drunk. The date was Saturday the 14th. His last recollection was sitting at a St. Louis bar on Monday the 9th. He had been drinking all day and was drunk, but could remember everything perfectly until about 3 p.m., when, like a curtain, dropped in his brain. His memory went blank. It remained blank for approximately five days. Three years later, it was still blank. He was so frightened by the experience that he abstained from alcohol for two years. The salesman, if you want a summary of what happened, the salesman had left the bar in St. Louis, Gone to the airport, bought a plane ticket, flown to Las Vegas, found a hotel, checked in, hung up his suit, shaved, and apparently functioned perfectly well in the world, all while in a blackout mode of drunkenness of 0.15%. The hippocampus shut down, memories stopped forming, and it was entirely possible that his frontal lobe, cerebellum, amygdala of the same drinker were all working while others were not. This is why it's dangerous. You and I recognize patterns. We recognize patterns with people. Somebody approaches us for the first time and we look at them and we go, you seem like a pretty good person. And why do we believe that somebody's a good person when they first approach us? Because we're comparing and contrasting them with all the list of people we've ever met in our entire life. Hey, that has a certain quality to my uncle. My uncle's awesome. And, oh, cool, you're just as funny, kind of like my dad. You start doing this compare and contrast based on your memory. If your memory goes when you drink too much, you're leaving yourself to be very vulnerable, not being able to depict and see patterns within people to really see who they are in those moments. And lots of people begin to p- kind of put out the problem in this exact idea. There's a woman who's a researcher, who uh, her name is Emily Yaffe, and she gives woman, uh, women uh, a very incredible warning. She says this, but we are failing to let women know that when they render themselves defenseless, terrible things can be done young women are getting a distorted message that their right to match men drink for drink is a feminist issue. The real feminist message should be that when you lose the ability to be responsible for yourself, you drastically increase the chances that you will attract the kinds of people who, shall we say, don't have your best interests at heart. That's not blaming the victim. That's trying to prevent more victims. And then she has some words for the guys, and a version of the same admonition was given to men. But we are failing to let men know that when they render themselves in this kind of alcohol state, they can do terrible things. Young men are getting a distorted message that drinking to excess is a harmless social exercise. The real message should be that when you lose the ability to be responsible for yourself, you drastically increase the chances that you will commit an issue, a problem, and a mistake. Acknowledging the role of alcoholics, not excusing the behavior of perpetrators. It's trying to prevent more young men from becoming people with problems. So, because the long rant is over, where does Jesus fit into this whole thing? Once again, verse 6. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. When Jesus does the miracle of wine, he does so in an extravagant level. He does so in a grand way. These six jars are holding about 30 gallons. This is about 680 liters, which for your terms is about 170 jugs of milk, okay? Okay. You know, the jugs of milk that you guys have in your fridge? So 170 of those. That's how much wine he creates in this moment. The custom of the day was to offer the best wine first, and then the less good wine later on is people can't really even tell the difference. For Jesus, he reverses that mandate, and while they get all of the, you know, crummy wine first, at the end, he gives them the best. Why does he give them wine? Why does Jesus offer them wine? Why does he go along with the demands and why does he give it to them? Well, first of all, in the Old Testament, abundant wine is the sign of the age to come when the Holy One, when the Messiah, when the one who comes to save us all is supposed to come, abundant wine is in the description. Look at Jeremiah 31 12. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks, and herd. Joel 3 18. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. Amos 9 13 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by by the plowman, and the plants are by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Jesus' conversion of such a large quantity of water into wine is a declaration that the long-awaited kingdom that everybody is waiting for is finally here. When he shows up and he does this miracle, it is to tell everyone, everything that you have been waiting for has now shown up. For Jesus, alcohol solves, uh, solves a purpose, and it serves a purpose as well. For him, it's the signpost that everything you've been waiting for has finally arrived. But secondly, people, Pharisees, the religious type, would go up to Jesus and they would say, you're a drunkard. And why would, they, why would they say that to him? Why would they harass him with this kind of a language? Because the purpose for Jesus in his use of alcohol was not isolation, was not a good time, but it was for solidarity and community. Jesus ate and drank with people he should not have eaten and drank with. When a man named Zacchaeus, who had robbed people of thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, the main thing that people got upset with Jesus about is that he drank and ate with Zacchaeus. Because in that moment, what Jesus is saying is I am fully accepting all of who you are. I'm fully accepting you and all of who you are by this drinking with them. We do not see alcohol this way, as a way of redeeming someone as a way of bringing them into the fold and bringing them into community. But Jesus does. Jesus sees alcohol as a two-sided coin. One, it can be used in horrible ways for horrible deeds, and another, it can be used for beautiful ways and for beautiful things. For him, wisdom is implied of how you use it, when you use it, why you should use it, to bring the fulfillment of the kingdom, to bring everybody to know exactly why he's doing a certain thing, and to bring people who are far from the gospel close to him by just sharing a drink. This is the way that Jesus sees alcohol. But on the other side, he does something else. Not only does he share a table with those who he wants solidarity with or he wants fellowship with, the glory of Jesus was also revealed both in his ability to change water to wine, which is obviously impressive, but it was also in the grace and abundance of quality wine to spare the couple of the disgrace and the shame that they were owed. If you went to a party back in this day and you ran out of wine, everybody in the community would shame you. They would shame you. All of the family of the groom would be completely embarrassed. The couple will never forget this moment in the history of their lives. Everybody in their community would remind them over and over and over again of how they did not properly equate wine for all of the community. They would have shamed them in that moment. And what Jesus does is he shows us right away in the very first miracle is when you offer a need, he will show up to take the shame away from you and put it on himself. It's the very first thing he does. That in the usage of alcohol, in the usage of wine, he offers to them the reversal and the exchange that the shame that you are offered, I will give you a full life of joy that you could never even possibly imagine if I wasn't here. And it shows... Let me just show you of how this whole thing works out. In the very first sentence in verse one of this whole thing, John is being pretty immediate with what he is trying to express. The wedding at Cana, chapter two, verse one. On the third day, on the third day, John at the very beginning of all of Jesus' stories is using language that we are going to hear very soon of what else happens on the third day when Jesus comes and sees a need and fills the need in a way that you could never possibly imagine to take away shame, listen to the, the things that is happening right now. On the third day, when someone has a need, he will fill the need. When someone has a need, he will offer them hope. When they have shame, he will take it from them and he will give them joy and abundance more than you could ever possibly imagine. Alcohol, in this case, for Jesus, was one to bring joy, not to bring harm, not to bring pain, and not to bring just a a tiny little sense of excitedness in the moment, but joy in this drink had a purpose for the redemption of people and not for bringing them down. Let me just say to you, from a very deep place in my heart, I have come to the conclusion that I cannot drink alcohol for a number of different reasons. One, I've just seen the harm that is created in my family. Do I think alcohol is a sin or drinking alcohol is a sin? No, of course not. Do I think that Jesus drank and he had a good time and brought people into fellowship? Of course I do. But the harms of the effects of what I've seen even through school the harms and effects that I've seen with people coming outside of school and seeing how their lives have worked out because they can't put the bottle down. All of those things have informed my life to go, I need to put this away. And so from a very deep part of my heart, I'm looking at every single one of you and let me tell you, this is not for me to sit up here and go, you're so bad for going to the party and drinking too much. That's not what I'm saying. And I hope you're not hearing that way. What I hope you are hearing this as, as here is a guy who has been through the things, who has done the things, who has seen the things, and is just trying to give you an alternative. I know, I'm not naive, that a number of you are not gonna listen to me and you are going to go further into the things that you wanna do. I'm not saying that that's okay, but I know that that's gonna be a reality. And all I'm trying to offer you and all I'm trying to say to you is, is Jesus has a different way for the thing that you are using it for. And what it can be used is for redemption, And not for sin and not for drunkenness and not for putting yourself into pain and vulnerable situations and making mistakes and having things that you might regret or have guilt for. What I'm saying is the same thing that can be used for bad can also be used for beautiful things. So when you see your parents have a glass of wine and they enjoy the presence of family members and people at Thanksgiving, it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's great to be able to see. This is something that is an impressive way of following Jesus in a way where you can handle and control things without temptation. Some others can't. And all I'm trying to get to the point of is when I look at you, love you guys to bits, 100%. Why am I talking about this? Because I want your best interest in mind. That for some of us, this is gonna be a problem. For some of us, this is gonna be an issue that you're gonna deal with all through high school. And all I'm trying to provide for you is, a, is that idea of there is another way. There is another way. I remember being 15 and I stopped drinking from that point until now because I saw myself as someone who I wanted to redeem those party moments, not be a part of them. I wanted to show my faith in Jesus by being somebody who was there alongside of you but was completely different in the moment. The reason why I got my friend out of so many problems and carried him like a baby all the way through Surrey and Wally was because I was the person at the party looking after him because that's what I wanted to show with my faith. What do you want to show? What do you want to do? What choice do you want to make with this one thing? That's the question we want to ask. So let me pray, and you guys can go off into your small groups. Father, we thank you so much that uh, when we give this depiction of alcohol through the scriptures, that you have this beautiful blessing of what it could be, that this is showing the new covenant, that this is showing the kingdom to come, that this is exactly how Jesus is going to operate, that when he brings somebody for a drink, is for the redemption of that person, not for the disgust or disgrace or the shame of that individual, that he came eating and drinking, and the Son of Man was one who came and brought solidarity with people, but that that very same thing can cause a lot of different issues, and if it's not done with wisdom, then things can go wrong, and so I just pray for wisdom in the room. I pray for a lot of intelligence. I pray for great decisions and I pray for people to reconsider things. I'm not saying that everybody in the room is perfect, Lord, but I just pray that you would just grant them just an extra bit of just thinking again of certain things and that you could just protect them. Please, Lord, protect people in this room. Protect them from bad decisions. Protect them from a bad night. Protect them from things, Lord God. I just pray that you would just do this in a mighty and grand way. So we just thank you and we love you so much. Thank you for listening to the Village Youth Podcast Show. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and don't forget to subscribe.